This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. And then you drop an even another order of magnitude and you have the amount of water in rivers, which is 0.006% of freshwater on the earth. The only reservoir that's smaller than rivers is the water contained within living things, hmm. which is about half of the water, which is in rivers. Yeah. So I guess, you know, for this, like this part of when we think of water, we like think of rivers and we think of lakes. And yet those are really particularly rivers, right? Are these really tiny components of our freshwater reservoir. And then, you know, another thing I think is, which is interesting to think about is how long is water hanging out in each of these reservoirs? This episode comes to you from the water cycle. This is our annual episode of What is a River? And today's guest is Dr. Rebecca Newman. She is a professor and researcher at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she focuses on hydrobiogeochemistry. In this What is a River? episode, we will look at how water really moves around, on, and in our planet. We will discuss how the entire water system is connected and how rivers are an important and fast portion of that water system, of that water cycle. Dr. Newman explains how water moves in rivers and in other parts of the water cycle. She will help us understand what is in the water and how rivers carry various elements. Our first episode of What is a River was published in April of 2021, that's last year, and we covered geomorphology. Now this is an ongoing topic, hosting experts on the topic of what is a river. Please welcome Dr. Rebecca Newman. My name is Rebecca B. Newman, and I go by Becca. I got actually surprisingly dual undergraduate degrees at Rice University. One was in civil engineering and the other was in art. And I really liked that combination of, you know, the right brain, left brain piece of that education. Uh, when I graduated, I worked as an environmental engineer for a few years and then returned to graduate school to get a PhD in environmental engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And when I finished that, I moved on to a postdoctoral position, which is basically this kind of intermediate position that academics tend to take at the end of their PhD and before a faculty position. And I did that at Harvard in um, actually ecology. So I've had a lot of different kind of educational training. When I finished my postdoc, I got my current position, which is a professor at the University of Washington, and I'm in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. I teach and conduct research on how chemicals move and react in the environment. I tend to focus on chemicals and situations that are going to have an impact on human or ecosystem health. And I call what I do hydrobiogeochemistry, which I know is a mouthful. And the joke is, could I cram any more things together into one word? Basically, it's how hydrologic, biologic, geologic, and chemical processes all interact to control the movement of chemicals in various different environments. Am I right to assume you are a doctor? Yes, I got my PhD, which makes me a doctor of philosophy. And many people are disappointed when they come to find out I'm not an actual medical doctor. But yes. <laughs> so then my next question for you is, how do you engage with rivers? And I would say this is that kind of mixture of 
obviously you have a very professional atmosphere with Rivers, professional relationship with Rivers. Um, so I'd like to hear about that. But I'm also curious about just on your on your personal side, how you have and do engage with Rivers. Great. So scientifically, I involve Rivers in to what I study and conduct research on. But personally, um, I just, I love the mountains and being outside. And that involves, you know, often walking along, crossing over rivers. And um, when I was in graduate school, I was a whitewater kayaker. So spent a lot of time um, boating and playing in rivers and waves and holes. Um, and I still love when we drive by rivers and see big rapids to try to read the river and think about how I would move through that rapid safely in a kayak. Um, we stopped boating um, when, when we had kids. Just felt at that point it was, it was too hard for us to continue. We moved to other activities like rock climbing, which are a little more, and in my experience, family friendly. But I know you can boat with kids. Um, but yeah, so I've just been around rivers my whole life and have really enjoyed recreating in rivers and now, you know, professionally thinking about and studying rivers. I was just re-listening this morning. It always kind of helps me to re-listen to some of my episodes before I do interviews. And I was re-listening to the first version of this, of this episode, What is a River? And it came out in early 2021. And I was explaining in there that this topic of what is a river is, is, is to me, one of my core questions as I, as I float rivers, as I'm near rivers, it's kind of like, what is this thing? Like, where's the water coming from? And I know these answers. I know I'm kind of on this base level, but the more I think about what rivers are, it's kind of like, what is space? Like, well, where does it begin and end and how does this work? And so this, this becomes this really fun question. And, and so my game now is to every year do a new episode of this with a different expert, yourself being one of these experts who was in a, you know, for the first year was, um, uh, geomorphology. So now we're into hydrobiogeochemistry, which I didn't know even existed, but it's super fun to think about it from that angle. So from (laughs) your, from your seat, from your perspective on rivers, from your expertise, what is a river to you? Yeah, thank you. Um, I really like this question and it got me thinking for a couple of days uh, myself, how would I define a river? What is a river? And I decided that rivers are a paradox. So they're one of the smallest and fastest components of our global water cycle, but then also one of the most important pieces of the water cycle, um, predominantly from a human perspective. So We have and still do depend on rivers for lots of things like water and food, transportation, recreation. And so this tiny component of our freshwater uh, is one of the most important. And so I think of them as this interesting paradox. When I think of a paradox, I feel like there's maybe a rub, like two conflicting things in there. Mm. Um, And I'm hearing you say like this, like, thing that we depend upon and this thing that's super fast and moving and dynamic is there more layers inside your own mind that you question around that paradox well I kind of looked up these numbers to to have them at the tips of my fingers for this interview but you know when we think about water on earth 
only two and a half percent of it is freshwater, right? So most of it is saltwater sitting in the oceans. And then most of this freshwater is actually frozen. So close to 70% is frozen as glaciers, ice, permafrost. And then the other remaining component around 30% is groundwater. So this water that lives between soils and sediments or in, you know, cracks within rocks underground. And so then the remaining components, which are the components that we as humans interact and think about because they're more at the surface, right? They're like tiny fractions. So 0.33% of the remaining freshwater. So, if, you know, I rounded those earlier numbers. So if you don't round them, then you get down into those decimal places. And so outside of glaciers, ice, permafrost, groundwater, the next biggest component is actually lakes. So most of that remaining freshwater, that 0.33% is actually lakes. And then you move down an order of magnitude and you have water that's held in the atmosphere and water held in wetlands. Those are each about the same amount of 0.03%. And then you drop an even another order of magnitude and you have the amount of water in rivers, which is 0.006% of freshwater on the earth. The only reservoir that's smaller than rivers is the water contained within living things, which is about half of the water, which is in rivers. Yeah. So I guess, you know, for this, like this part of when we think of water, we like think of rivers and we think of lakes and yet those are really particularly rivers, right? Are these really tiny components of our freshwater reservoir. And then you know, another thing I think is, which is interesting to think about is how long is water hanging out in each of these reservoirs? Mm-hmm. So, um, I love when I present this to students in my classes, but you know, a little particle of water is going to spend about on, again, these are on average, right? So some spends less and some spends more time in oceans and seas. Water lives there for about 4,000 years on average. And then in ice caps and glaciers, this is like the frozen water. It, it stays in that reservoir anywhere from 10 to a thousand years. So we're, you know, we have these long residence times. Is that 10,000 to 1,000 or 10 years to a thousand years? 10 years to a thousand years. And then groundwater, I think is even more interesting, which, you know, I teach a groundwater class. So I get excited about this groundwater We have water, you know, it can be underground for two weeks. So it's a short period of time. We also have water that's been underground for 10,000 years. So very old, like fossil groundwater. And then you move down to, so those are kind of the pieces of the water cycle that we don't think about much. Um, I mean, oceans because of the saltwater piece, but then, you know, ice caps and glaciers because it's frozen and groundwater because it's, we can't see it. Hidden from us. Um, and then you move to lakes and reservoirs, the average residence time is two years. But water in a river channel, on average, only is there for two weeks. So it's really fast. Water comes in and kind of zips through these river channels. Um, the only th- thing shorter is the atmosphere. Water tends to hang out in the atmosphere for about 10 days on average. And then in living things, the biosphere for, so for about a week, one week. So these 
rivers are there with the atmosphere and the biosphere in these kind of rapid cycling. So that's why I say I think of rivers as this kind of tiny and fast moving component of our water system. The River Radius podcast is very honored to welcome Alpaca Raft to our advertising crew. Alpaca Rafts are the beginning and the foundation of the pack rafting community, and they were created by a mother and son duo of Sherry and Thor Tingey, who founded the company some 20 years ago. These boats are made in the United States and are made right here in Southwest Colorado by my friends and neighbors. What is a pack raft? A pack raft is a small, ultralight, inflatable boat that carries one to two people and was initially designed for backcountry travel where you can hike in and paddle out. They look like and paddle like a canoe or a kayak, but they are inflated with air. These are easy to paddle and can carry large amounts of gear. They have a cargo fly zipper on them, and this allows you to store your gear inside the tubes of the boat. Your gear stays dry. It does not get wet. The gear is also not taking up space inside the boat where you sit. It's easy to pack and carry on your back in a backpack. It packs up the size of a tent or even smaller. They're extremely durable. They're dog-friendly. They're lightweight. Their lightest boat is just under 3 pounds, and their heaviest boat is just over 10 pounds. They're viciously tough, built with a urethane-coated fabric. They're hand-sewn, and they have customizable colors and add-ons. You can find Alpaca Raft on the web at www.alpacaraft.com, also on Facebook and on Instagram. Find them with two accounts, Alpaca Raft and Alpaca Raft Hunt. Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck, and in the middle of this episode we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier, this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck, it has a new look for 2022. Check it out. It's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed. Or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? And can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1,600 pounds in the truck, and it can pull a trailer with about 6,200 pounds of total weight. In riverboat terms, that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers, all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full, and yes... Even your friends or my friends, maybe all of them. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius podcast sent you. I love that visual, just the idea of like the water being in that place so long. I have another visual that I like to think about. Yeah. Can I share it? Please do. So, when I was a little kid hiking, in the mountains of Colorado with my dad, we often would end up at the continental divide. And he would say, you realize we're, we're at this kind of continental divide. And that means that any kind of water or snow falling on this side of the trail is going to flow down and ultimately end up in the Atlantic ocean and water or snow falling on this other side of the trail is going to flow and end up in the Pacific ocean. 
And, you know, I often, I remember kind of puzzling over that as a kid. And then, you know, now kind of with my academic background, I like to even enrich that a little bit more and think about, you know, a little drop of water falling somewhere near this continental divide and like where it's going to get discharged, you know, depends just on which side of the trail it's falling on. But even before it gets to that ocean, it has to travel, you know, through the soils and the subsurface. And then it can spend then this time underground. That time might be short, or it could be thousands of years before that water droplet either pops out directly into the ocean or can pop out into a surface water body like lakes and rivers. And I like to think of, you know, this water droplet. So when water is moving below ground, it's going very slowly because it's moving through the void spaces between grains of soils and grains of sediment or through cracks and rocks, but basically, right. It's, it's having to, to push through this kind of porous media. So it moves pretty slowly. And then I just picture this water droplet kind of coming out from this slow moving groundwater system into a river and then vroom, just like <laughs> zooming down, down through the channel where it then, you know, in two weeks, it, it suddenly like gets, plopped out in on average two weeks gets plopped out into the ocean. So I like that kind of visualization of following a water droplet from say like this continental divide and then where, where it's going and kind of what sort of conditions it might be experiencing. The next question that I, that I'll ask is, is what is in a river? And, and, and I would like you just to go, you know, real basic and obvious, like there's logs and there's beaver and there's these things and this thing, but then take us through like a metaphorical funnel all the way down to the littlest things that are in a river. And I think that that might end being water, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's smaller things in water than water. I don't even know if that makes sense. I'm the non-science guy asking the science questions. So if you would clarify that, please. Scientifically, I tend to be drawn towards the things that I can't see with my eyes. So I feel like from a science perspective, I know more about that small end of the spectrum that you were talking about. And on that bigger end of logs and critters and all, and those types of things, it's just based on my personal experience, boating and hiking and being around rivers, um, you know, noticing the big boulders that cause there to be holes or the trees that you don't want to get strained on if you <laughs> end up swimming in your kayak. So that's kind of the macroscopic side, which I think a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with given their experience also being in and around rivers. Um, scientifically, you know, down now on this kind of smaller side of things that we can't really see when we're just standing and looking at a river or playing in a river. Um, you know, I think about what is this water that we're actually seeing here in the river. And turns out that about half of that water was originated as groundwater. So it's water that was below ground and then has popped out into this river channel. And then the other half of the water coming in is basically water that has flown over the land surface. Uh, we call that runoff, um, or, you know, it's water that's directly precipitated into the river or um, maybe smaller tributaries uh, connecting into that river. 
But then um, there's also then what else is in that water? What is being carried by that water? And that, you know, gets to this water quality piece, which I'm also very interested in. So what is the, the chemicals, um, the microbes, maybe the pathogens that are also being moved and carried by the water? You know, all water out in the environment has more in it than just H and O more than hydrogen and oxygen, right? So there's um, a whole range of different chemicals, elements that end up getting dissolved into the water and the water can gain those elements, um, you know, as it's like moving through and interacting with soils and sediments. Um, also it can gain elements as it's interacting with the atmosphere. Rivers are also carrying things like potassium and carbonate and magnesium. And it's actually these elements or these salts, which often can give water a nice taste. So I don't know if you've ever tried to drink um, distilled water. You can like buy it in the grocery store. And so distilled water means that they've actually worked pretty hard to remove everything from that water besides just the hydrogen and the oxygen. If you drink distilled water, it ends up just kind of tasting I don't know, like flat is maybe the word or just the, I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, next time you're at the store, maybe you can pick up a jug and take it, take a swig of it. But you know, it's, it's then these ions that water picks up in the environment that ends up kind of giving it in most cases, a nice flavor. So sometimes that's, you know, different elements can, can have kind of not as good impacts, but overall, um, a healthy natural system has a range of chemicals dissolved in it. We also have microbes out in the environment and pathogens. And so when we think about polluted or impacted rivers, it's often rivers that have, you know, chemical elements at concentrations that become harmful for humans or harmful for the ecosystem. So even kind of naturally occurring things in water, like nutrients, if the levels get too high, then they become, you know, not, not good for us or not good for the ecosystem. So an example of that is like the Mississippi river. I imagine you've heard of like that dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And so that's really due to these kind of high nitrogen high phosphate loads coming in along the length of the Mississippi and then coming out into the Gulf of Mexico and then fueling all this algae life and algae production that when those algae die and sink to the bottom of the ocean, end up consuming all of the oxygen dissolved in that water, creating this kind of space where other organisms can't, other aquatic organisms can't live. But, you know, besides the chemicals, then I think a, a big issue in a lot of river systems is like raw sewage, right? And, and pathogens being released into these rivers, um, which then have kind of impacts on our human health as well. Are, is there still a lot of raw sewage dumped into rivers in the United States? So in the United States, no, because we have the Clean Water Act. I think what happens sometimes is we can have these, depending on where you are, you can have these combined sewer outflow events. So like at least here in Seattle, our sewer system is connected with our 
kind of stormwater system. And so what can happen is, you know, in a big rain event where you have a lot of water falling in the city and on all the roads and the sidewalks, um, that water can come in and end up exceeding the design capacity for our water treatment system. And then um, you get these events called CSO events, combined sewer outflow. So basically what happens in that case is raw sewage does end up kind of getting pumped out into whatever nearby water body, um, those stormwater systems. In our case, it's the Puget Sound. But, you know, there are regulations around that and, and active efforts to try to reduce those types of things. So I think in the U.S. it's it's less of an issue. Um, but in other rivers around the world, it's a huge issue. So I was doing some work in a floating community. There's just these so many kind of floating communities throughout the world. I was looking at one in Peru. They exist in Cambodia, Vietnam, um, a range of different places. And, you know, largely these end up being immigrants who kind of move into a, a place and there's not really affordable housing or they're not welcomed. And so then they build these communities out on the river. So they live on these floating houses. And so in Peru, and we were in Iquitos, these were indigenous people from the Amazon had come into the city to try to do jobs, you know, and then, you know, ended up building this, these floating houses. And it's, it's, it's crazy. These houses like sit on dry earth in the dry season and then float up probably like three meters or more in the wet season when the Amazon kind of grows in extent. And so they're just living in this really dynamic environment. You know, they're living downstream of other communities that are living along and on rivers. It's just completely unregulated. People are just pooping their outhouses dump right into the river. And so the load of E. coli in the river is astronomically high. And I was there trying to study if we could use aquatic plants to help try to pull some of the E. coli out of the water. And we found it was effective in like the shallowest water, but not in the deeper um, water. But I was there one day of sampling. And then after that, I was stuck in my hotel room with you know, E. coli in my system tethered to the toilet. And yet, you know, we have this whole community of people that live on this water, get their food out of that water, swim in that water, and their systems are more used to that contamination than mine, but they have diarrheal disease and a lot of health issues associated with that. So I would say we're lucky here in the U.S., but I think this sewage is an issue in a lot of other international rivers. You, you said earlier that the volume of water in a river is definitely from snow melt and rain, so surface runoff coming into the river, but that around half of the volume is from groundwater discharging into the river bed and moving downstream. Can you talk about the, the relationship yep. of that water in a river to groundwater and then how does it how does it move back and forth? Can you just kind of talk about all those together? These systems are interconnected. So half of the water that we're seeing on average in a river originated as groundwater. So that means that this is water that fell as rain 
or fell as snow. And then instead of running over land, seeped in to the ground surface, continued moving down, didn't get sucked up by the roots of plants, (laughs) which can happen, right? So it escaped transpiration by plants and managed to keep moving deeper into the surface. And then at some point intersects with a depression, let's say in the landscape. So if you kind of think about a water table underground, right? We, we have this level at which water underground below it, all the void space between soils and sediments is filled with water. And then above it, that void space is filled with air and with water. So that top zone, which is filled with air and with water is where the plant, most of the plant roots are living. And so they're the ones sucking up soil moisture. Um, but that water, that soil moisture is trickling and moving down. And then you hit the aquifer, which is then this zone, which is completely saturated, which means all of those void spaces are filled with water. That surface between that saturated and that unsaturated zone is called the water table. And you could imagine this kind of flat surface underground. And then say you have like a big depression suddenly in the landscape, right? That water is going to fill up that depression and, and come to the same level as the surrounding water table. And so then in that case, for example, you could have a lake, right? Where it's a groundwater fed lake. And what you're seeing in the lake is basically just the surface expression of this underground water table. In rivers, it's it's pretty much the same thing. Like basically the cartoon example is you have this groundwater coming down from mountains and moving down into these kind of lower elevations and discharging out into these river channels, which are at these lower elevations. And so you can think of that water as kind of flowing and then popping up and out into this river channel, just kind of based on that gravity, moving that groundwater slowly down towards that river channel. Now, depending on the context, water in a river channel can also, you know, move back into an aquifer. So it's not always that groundwater is feeding rivers. Sometimes rivers are feeding groundwater. You know, it just really does depend on that local context and on that given climate situation or the elevation situations. And then there is this, this hyperreic zone where there's actually really active movement of water in and out of the river channel. And that's all happening in this kind of shallow river bank. And so you have water popping into the river bank and out back into the river and in and back out. That I feel like is a slightly different process than this kind of slower regional groundwater flow moving and feeding into a river. When I think of water and how water moves, I think that it either evaporates because it's exposed to the air and then probably some sort of heat and wind. And that when water is a droplet of water, that it is affected by gravity and it is moving to the lower ground around it, whatever that may be. But then I, you know, I, I just, I don't totally understand how groundwater does move because like a spring, it's bubbling up. Does water move opposite of gravity when it's underground? Groundwater moves 
based on water potential. And so water potential is made up of three components. So one is what you're talking about, gravity or potential energy. One is then kinetic energy. So we're familiar you know, with rivers. And I think in David Montgomery's podcast, he talked about, you know, rivers are taking that potential energy um, and, you know, then it's moving downstream and that's the conversion um, into this kinetic energy, but it loses a lot of that energy due to friction and the turbulence in the river. I really liked how he um, described that. So we have potential energy, which is basically elevation, like gravity will pull things down. Kinetic energy, which is based on speed and the movement, but then there's also a pressure energy. And so we're familiar with pressure, right? We can pump water uphill and that's because we're using pressure to counteract that potential energy. So by moving water up a hill, we're going against gravity, but we're using pressure. In groundwater, the water's moving so slowly that we don't even think about kinetic energy because things are just putzing along. So the two components that end up really controlling how water moves is this potential energy, which is basically elevation, but then also pressure. What can happen is down at deeper depths, water is losing elevation, but it then has all this weight of the water on top of it, which is pressure. So you can get actually water flowing uphill or not uphill, but against gravity in a below ground system because of that pressure gradient, pushing that water basically up against gravity. An example, sometimes you put a well in the ground and the water level in that well is going to basically rise up to the level that represents the potential energy at that place in the subsurface where you stuck a well. You have then the potential energy based on the elevation and then that pressure. So sometimes we end up with these wells called artisanal wells. And, and what happens is like you stick a well in the ground and then suddenly water just comes bursting out of the ground and like just flowing out of this well. And that's because that water was under so much pressure. It exceeded the atmospheric pressure and then that potential gradient due to the elevation change. And that water is able to move from that location below ground and up into the air. Sometimes we see these artisanal wells because of that. You also mentioned springs and, you know, a spring up in a mountain, that's basically just where the land surface is intersecting that groundwater table. That water is going to seep through the surface of the mountain there, because that's just basically where the water table is. And so that water is just seeping out. And so we call those springs. Alpaca Raft is sponsoring today's episode on what is a river. Personally, I have an alpaca pack raft. I have the Narwhal model. This is a whitewater specific boat. It has custom colors and some add-ons. It has a spray deck, which keeps me dry and warm from the waist down. That is really nice. It holds the gear inside the tubes, leaving lots of space in the boat for me, and the gear stays dry inside the tubes. 
I take this boat down rowdy water and it's totally durable. I take this on flat water and it's super easy to paddle and track. I've taken this on day runs from the mountains down. I've taken it on small desert rivers, overnights and single days. It is an incredible boat for all of these locations. Alpaca Raft builds pack rafts for rivers and they also support river conservation and the rivers we all love. Alpaca works with a multitude of conservation organizations including American Whitewater, American Rivers, Great Old Broads for Wilderness, Trout Unlimited, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and many more state and community conservation groups. Alpaca Raft was born from a love of wild and clean rivers in the backcountry. They want these places to remain intact for you and for future generations to come. Alpaca Rafts builds and sells pack rafts, and Alpaca protects the rivers we love. You can find Alpaca Raft on the web at www.alpacaraft.com. Also on Facebook and on Instagram, find them with two accounts, Alpaca Raft and Alpaca Raft Hunt. Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from, that is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you, you can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan Leaf for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022 and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick looking four door SUV, has lots of comfortable features and a range up to 300 miles and they even have an all wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. What I'd like to do at this point is bring in some listener questions. And, and I have three mm-hmm. listener questions from, from folks on Instagram as we, we post it out that people can ask questions for this interview with you. The first one is coming from Wilson Cramp. Wilson's talking about the Androscoggin River in Maine and curious about the impact of paper mills on rivers and then the pollution, the pollution impact. And then when that's cleaned up, how does the river support the cleanup? And and I'm paraphrasing his, his question somewhat, but when a river kind of suffers the consequences of being polluted and then is able to be kind of unpolluted. What is the river doing to support its own cleanup? And I, and I think I would understand that there's just like the obvious downstream flush. But there's a lot of other pieces to this pollution where the pollution hides out and the impacts it has on the whole riparian system and the riverbed. Can you talk about how the river mm-hmm. supports the cleanup of itself? Yeah, it's a great question. Chemicals in the environment, as you, you were kind of alluding to by hiding out, depending on their characteristics are going to associate with different environmental components. Some things like nitrate stay dissolved in water. Nitrate is going to kind of get flushed with the water and move through a system pretty quickly. But another form of nitrogen, ammonium, tends to stay associated and stick 
to soils and sediments. And then microbes in the environment are doing these redox reactions fueled by this organic carbon, and they can, you know, convert nitrogen into these different forms. So, you know, from nitrate into ammonium and ammonium into nitrate and into, into gas. And, um, you know, there's all these different forms that a chemical can take and, you know, they are going to behave differently in the environment. So nitrate, for example, has a negative charge and ammonium has a positive charge. And so that positive charge is what kind of keeps that chemical attracted to the soils and sediments, just, just as an example. And so you can think about a range of chemicals and they're all going to kind of hide out in these different places, right? Some are going to predominantly stay dissolved in water. Some are going to partition into organic matter. If it's an organic chemical, some are going to associate with soils and sediments. Uh, Some is going to be taken up into organisms that live in the river, maybe even taken up by plants along the bank of the river. And so let's say these paper mills stop operating. They stop putting their industrial outfall into the river. So now you no longer have this kind of source. The source has been stopped. But, you know, like you were alluding to, it, it does take time for then that loading of chemical that occurred from that paper mill over all those number of years to move its way out of the, out of that river system. And so, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, I talked about ammonium being sorbed onto the sediment. There's this equilibrium. So most of the ammonium is going to be on the soils and sediments, but some will be dissolved into the water so that it's this chemical equilibrium kind of between the two. So over time, as this water with its short residence time that we talked about, right, like two weeks, it's coming in to this section of the river where the paper mill had been dumping their uh, waste. It comes in clean and then it moves through this section that's been impacted. It's going to equilibrate with all of these places that we just talked about where the chemical is hiding. And then that water is going to pick up then some of those chemicals and then move downstream. As it moves downstream, say into an unimpacted, clean part of the river, it's going to re-equilibrate. And then that chemical is going to hide back into the organic carbon and and hide back into the soils and sediments in, in different levels, in different concentrations, right? But it's this kind of, you can think of it as like a slow leaching of that chemical into the water. Um, but then it moves downstream and it's going to reassociate and then slowly leach. And so it's, it's almost like you can think of it as like this leapfrog type of behavior. Right. And, and this like smearing of that chemical across that river channel over time, then this, this like chemical will slowly work its way down the river and it will get diluted as it does that because it's going to get kind of smeared out by this process. And so the levels will drop over time, but for it to fully leave the system, you know, again, it depends on what contaminants we're talking about, but then, you know, that's going somewhere. Right. And we've talked about, so once it's kind of no longer in that river channel, then it's out in the ocean and having its own impact in the ocean. So another question around pollution comes from Dory Lad on Instagram, a wooden boat builder and river runner. His question is, he says, he says, they always say, quote, 
The solution to pollution is dilution, end quote. So what does that mean for polluted waterways as the water becomes more scarce with warming, drying trends? Will less water mean higher concentrations of pollutants? That's that saying the solution to pollution is dilution, you know, is some is somewhat true because the ecosystem and human health impacts of pollution do largely depend on the concentration, right? So there are some chemicals or it's like kind of no amount of exposure is really safe. And so in that case, dilution will help, but it's not really a solution because even kind of any exposure is not safe. Um, But if we're thinking more about something like nutrients, right? We know that we do want some nitrogen and phosphorus in our ecosystems because we need that to support plant life and ecos, you know, aquatic ecosystems, right? But at if we get too much of it, that's when we we then have issues. And so in that context, diluting it and bringing the concentrations down is a solution. Um, and I guess as an aside, um, I do know like water treatment facilities. So these are water for cities, right? There are drinking water levels. So there's levels of contaminants that the EPA says you can't have more than 10 parts per billion arsenic in your water. Um, and so some communities, you know, have a source of water where arsenic is above 10 parts per billion, um, but they can't afford to put in treatment for that, which is expensive. And so what they do is they then find a water source um, that doesn't have arsenic in it. And they are basically diluting. They're like mixing those two waters together and basically diluting it. So in that case, that is this dilution as a solution. But returning to this idea of how might we expect pollution to change in the future? Yeah, unfortunately, I sense that our quality of rivers is likely going to probably on average get worse as we have lower flows and warmer temperatures and assuming that we continue to kind of have the same loads of chemicals and waste and sewage and all of those things flowing into the river. So I do sense that'll exacerbate things. Now, you know, this is a human caused problem, so it could also be a human addressed problem, right? Like we're the reason that there is this pollution in these rivers. So we can also be the reason that we stop putting the pollution in the rivers. But like most of these issues in the world, it takes political will and probably money. So my understanding of climate change and the impacts on, on different ecosystems is they, is they vary. It's, it seems to be the pattern that, that places that have low precipitation are having less precipitation and places that have strong precipitation are having stronger precipitation. So I'm curious if some of this conversation around pollution impacts on rivers is that if the flows generally decrease, that they will, the pollution impacts will uh, become more prominent because they'll be, they won't be washed out as much. So would the opposite then happen in a place where flooding increases, would that then suggest that pollution in these rivers that are going to have more and more floods will become cleaner with those floods? Or are those floods just redepositing other greater pollutions upstream to downstream? It's true that the general pattern is that drier regions are getting drier and wetter regions seem to be getting wetter. But I would say that, you know, 
flooding flooding is is you know a bit of a different situation than kind of a non-flooding condition or like a quote unquote normal situation right so we talked about water and its movement from the sky through the ground maybe over land and you know in into streams and so that process doesn't happen so much when you have flooding particularly the movement through the ground and so what happens when water moves through ground is a lot of pollutants actually end up getting kind of filtered. I mean, not all of them, but right. Like when we treat water, one way we treat it is we filter it. And so you can think of soils and sediments kind of as a filter. And so if, if we end up bypassing that filter and we have more overland flow, you know, depending on the context that can actually bring more pollution into the system. So take more of like an urban environment when we have flooding, you know, we can end up with these things, like I mentioned earlier with these sewer overflows, for example, where our systems just can no longer handle all the water coming through them. We can't treat it. And so then we end up kind of just directly discharging untreated water out into these waterways. And we know that stormwater in urban environments can carry all kinds of chemicals with them. And often that stuff is not things that we want to be finding in our rivers. And that's largely because our water systems and our water treatment systems weren't built to handle these big flooding events. Last question I have from listeners is coming from the Protect Our Rivers account, which is a very cool organization creating and organizing these hands-on river cleanups where people go out and get in the water and pull out the trash. And uh, the River Radius has sponsored one, and I was at that, and it was fascinating how much trash we pulled out of this river, the kind of things you don't understand that are happening. And this was in in an urban setting, but regardless. uh, So this comes from Sarah Nelson at Protect Our Rivers, and she says, she's, she's curious, I'd like to know more about microplastics and the toxins that wash off our skin from soaps and sunscreen and how potent they are to water. And so then I'm going to add a little to that because um, I think what this is really talking about, this is not necessarily, I'm I'm assuming some of this question, but I don't think this is necessarily talking about the impact of those things in an urban setting, but more in a backcountry wilderness setting where a lot of river runners go, just just lots of very, very pristine, kind of the pristine environments that we have left where river runners get to go. And sometimes we're told, you know, don't bathe in those waters because the soaps will be have an impact on on the kind of that, the clarity, the cleanliness of the water. So I think it's a great question. I'm curious about what you think about the, the soaps and the sunscreens and then the microplastics. Microplastic is a very emerging issue. You know, I think we're finding them all over the place. And, you know, it is a big problem because so much of our world is plastic. So much of like ocean trash and river urban trash ends up being plastic. I think it's still kind of an open question, you know, how toxic microplastics are to aquatic ecosystems and to humans. I think it's an area of active investigation. That's my understanding. You know, we're talking about chemicals kind of hiding in these different environments. And so um, if there is a form of plastic in the environment, um, you know, that's a place where chemicals can associate on and into. And so I think, you know, there have been studies showing like, you know, these plastics can carry metals and, you know, other probably toxic things through the environment, how available are, are those contaminants, 
you know, to be taken up by biological systems, I think is an open question, you know, in terms of kind of soaps and sunscreen, you know, those are chemicals that wouldn't be in that environment if it weren't for us being there. I know like a lot of soaps can contain phosphate, which is often a very limiting nutrient in these environments. I would guess, particularly in these kind of backcountry environments. And just in general, what studies have shown is that, you know, so for like algae to grow, right. So the, the green algae, they, they get energy from the sun and they're doing photosynthesis. And so they can build biomass that way. But the other piece that they need in their biomass is nitrogen and phosphorus. Those are the other two elements, major elements besides carbon that plants and algae and things need. And so if you have a limiting nutrient, like phosphorus, let's say, and then suddenly enough phosphorus enters the system that it's no longer limiting. And by limiting, I mean, to build a cell of algae, it needs X amount of phosphorus, X amount of nitrogen to each carbon atom. Right. And so what can keep algae from growing often is that there's plenty of carbon around, there could be plenty of nitrogen around, but there's just not enough phosphorus. Um, and then suddenly phosphorus becomes available. Now the algae can start photosynthesizing and building their biomass. And, you know, suddenly you can take, you know, a lake or a river that was crystal clear. And now it's full of green algae, which we don't love. Now that said, I don't know if like, you know, I think it's just a question of like how many people are moving through these systems and how much soap is actually going in. And is that enough to kind of, you know, put enough phosphorus into the system. I would say, um, again, phosphorus is one of those elements that likes to associate with the soils and the sediments. And so you, you could be thinking like, oh, well I'm using this and it's getting flushed down the river, but in reality, it's sorbing onto the soils and sediments. And then the next person comes and uses the phosphorus and that absorbs onto the soil. You know, so over time, um, by multiple people doing that, even though you're not all there at the same time, you could still be loading up phosphorus into the system. And then that would become available at a later date and time at some point to support algae growth or, you know, to kind of decrease the clarity of the river because of biology. You know, I'm doing a little bit of quick math on, I'm just choosing one river in my mind and, and kind of what I understand around how many people might be on that river in a summer. Uh, I'm thinking 20 to 25,000 people on a crystal clear river uh, yeah. who, who might be, you know, who are probably almost all having sunscreen on their bodies. And I'm yeah. thinking up in Idaho. And I think that a lot of times the soap hand wash stations are actually poured up on the bank into a sump hole as opposed to thrown into the river. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And so there you go. There's filtering an, piece. Yeah. There's a filtering piece there where it's kind of, so it's kind of, yeah, it's doing whatever it's doing through the groundwater system. But that, that sunscreen, you know, 20,000 people wearing sunscreen for a week. And and then the other thing is it's like not just in a year, right? Like that's 25,000 yeah. people wearing sunscreen in a year over 50 years, right? So yeah. that certain, like I've been talking about some chemicals flush out of the system quickly. Others hide in these different compartments, like in the soils and in the sediments and in the organic carbon and, and that can just build up over time because it's not getting really flushed from the system. And so I'm, I'm guessing what they're worried about is, you know, that buildup over time accumulating 
over years, not just this season. These conversations, it's easy to drift into the things that are that are really like having having negative impacts on our waterways. Yeah. And I also think that there are there's some really cool things happening and some just a, there's just a lot of people doing a lot of good work. And yeah. rivers are there's a lot of places where rivers are really awesome and really pretty and yeah. really clean and really fun. And I'm curious, um, I'm curious what you know that's good. Like <laughs> 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 you know. What, what's what's going on with research and with with new styles of um, I don't even want to categorize sure. it, but I'm okay. I'm curious from your understanding of rivers, what's good? What's good going on in yeah. the teaching, the researching, the use of? Yeah, what do you know? Yeah, thank you. I do think it's important. As I said, I tend towards pessimism, but I strive for optimism, and I have to kind of work at it. You know. I can say that I think that on the good side of things, you know, I, I mean, I feel like the tribes actually in this region have been doing a lot, you know, through their water rights, you know, like this lawsuit to kind of stand up for the rivers and the ecosystems. So I feel like there's actually been a lot of positive work actually done by the tribes, at least here in Washington. On the research side, you know, I think there's been at least what I'm aware of is, you know, a lot of work in our kind of urban environments about, you know, how to kind of design and, and manage these urban waterways, which are, we have a lot of them here in Seattle. Um, and, you know, like there's this Thornton Creek kind of near where I live and they, they did this whole reconstruction and like daylighted the river. It used to just be like, you know, underground in these pipes basically. And so, you know, daylighting it and putting logs in and trees and supporting meanders and, you know, and so I do think there's been growing awareness, at least in these places where we can design these urban environments where we can try to design and manage our waterways to make them healthier. So I feel like there's been a lot of good research in that space and kind of management of stormwater. So we don't put these like tire rubber chemicals in, into the streams. Yeah. So I think those are some good, good strides, you know, like efforts to try to clean up rivers. Awesome. Well, I'm going to call it quits. Okay. And, <laughs> and so thank you, Dr. Newman for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time and your insights. My pleasure. It's fun. Thank you for doing this and putting this out for people. A groundwater size thank you goes out to Dr. Rebecca Newman for joining us today on the River Radius for our annual episode of What is a River? In today's episode notes, you can find a link for her lab online and also for her University of Washington bio. Today's advertising sponsors are Alpaca Raft and Nissan in the Denver area Nissan dealers. You can find links to both sponsors' websites and their Instagrams in today's episode notes. All of our music is created and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. Because of biology. I found myself just kind of going down a rabbit hole with that one. Great. So let me find a stack of books here. So I think I lost track of your question a little bit there. <laughs>